Hebrews chapter 2. Our text is verses 14 and 15, but I'm going to begin reading in the last statement of verse 13 and read right down through verse 18. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. When we consider Christ coming to earth in flesh, there is so much to consider. Yes, Jesus is a man, but he is the God-man. He is the man who existed from eternity and in the fullness of time took on flesh to provide redemption for his people. It's infinite, the things that we could consider about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the book of Hebrews, the writer is defending the preeminence of Christ and the fullness of salvation in Christ, the completeness of salvation that we have through Christ. And he begins the book by stating that Christ is superior to all the previous revelation that came through the prophets and through the priests. And as he moves into chapter 1 and chapter 2, the writer says that Christ is even superior to the angels. Now at this time of year, angel appearances are, are something that grab our attention. Angel appearances surround the birth of Christ. Zechariah, Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds all heard from angels concerning the coming of Christ. We even sang a hymn this morning, Angels from the Realm of, of Glory, which is one of several hymns that includes angels in the title. Others are angels we have heard on high and hark the herald angels sing. And we're somewhat fascinated by these spiritual beings created by God. And earlier in the book, in chapter 1 and verse 14, the writer of Hebrews has told us that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. But in exalting Christ, the writer of Hebrews clarifies that Jesus is God and not an angel. He also clarifies that Jesus is man and not an angel. As the God-man, Jesus is superior to the angels. Now this was important, an important point of clarification, especially for Jews who were the primary audience of this letter. 
Jews viewed angels highly, well, if they weren't Sadducees. They viewed angels quite highly as beings next to God and obviously greater than man. And so one of the great tensions in the Jewish mind with the coming of Christ is how could, how could this man be the Messiah? How, how could he be greater than angels? How could he alone provide a complete salvation? Because in their mind, they saw Christ as lower than the angels. So how could someone superior to the angels be made lower than the angels for a little while? And chapter 2 raises this question as the writer quotes from Psalm 8. In chapter 2, verse 6, it's been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And then the writer of Hebrews is going to explain the significance of that passage. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. And he's speaking of Christ. He goes on and says, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So you can see how the Jewish mind might struggle with this. How can someone superior to the angels be made lower than the angels? How, how can someone superior to the angels taste death, something that angels will never experience? And throughout the book of Hebrews, what the writer will express and clarify concerning the great salvation that Christ alone provides is that Christ, as the God-man, Christ does what neither angels, Moses, or the high priest, or the ceremonial law could do. He delivers from the fear of death. The passage before us this morning declares that the pre-existent, eternal Son of God took on flesh to accomplish the redemption for His children. We read the end of verse 13 that states, Behold, I and the children God has given to me. And then verse 14 picks up, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself partook of the same things. The children referred to in this passage are those who are given to Christ by the Father to be brought to glory, to eternal life, through sanctification in Christ. The children are those whom Christ sanctifies completely, cleanses from sin completely because of the redemption of His blood shed on the cross. His children are those who are not only cleansed from sin, whose price for their infinite sin against a holy God has been paid, but they are also those who are clothed in the righteousness of 
Christ Himself. So this passage, the two verses that we're looking at today, clarifies that Christ offers a complete salvation. Salvation in Christ alone conquers the fear of death. And there is no other religion that sets forth with absolute certainty deliverance from the fear of death. Several years ago, I had an opportunity to interact with a Roman Catholic priest at a local parish and discuss Christ and the nature of salvation. It was an enlightening interaction that that just simply clarified and verified the falsehood of the Roman Catholic religion in the adding of works and the adding of so many things to Christ. But in that conversation, one of the most sobering and sad statements that that priest said repeatedly was, I hope I make it. Repeatedly. And here is the priest of a parish of several thousand people, and and the best he can say is, I hope I make it. Why? Because Roman Catholicism, as any other false religion, holds forth no certainty from the deliverance of death from the deliverance of the fear of death. Oh, but in Christ, the certainty is clear. He completely, completely paid for sin. He gives complete righteousness, and it's all by the grace of God. Well, let's turn our attention to these verses. We're going to see... Our theme this morning from this passage is that Jesus came to deliver his children from fear. Or we could add, extend it a little bit, Jesus came in flesh to deliver his children from fear. In the first part of verse 14, we see your vulnerable condition. So our first point this morning is your vulnerable condition. Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, Christ came to partake of the same things. What is your vulnerable condition? Well, your vulnerable condition is that you share in flesh and blood. Every human being is made up of a physical body. God created man as a living being with a physical body. Flesh and blood sustain your life on this earth, but it wastes away. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self, what is made of flesh and blood, our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And in that statement, Paul captures the reality that, that we, are, we consist of both a material part of us, our physical body, what's flesh and blood, and the immaterial part of us, our soul or spirit. Your physical body will return to dust. 
God proclaimed this in Genesis 3.19, following the fall of Adam and Eve. God told Adam if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die, or dying they would die. And after they sinned against God, the consequence of their sin is that you were made out of dust, and to dust you shall return. Your physical body will return to dust. But when you die, when your flesh and blood give out, make no mistake, you will continue to exist. There are so many passages that make this clear. Luke 16 Verses 19 through 31 is one of those passages. And go ahead and turn in your Bibles to that third gospel, the third book in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke chapter 16. And in that passage, Jesus is talking about a rich man and Lazarus. And this rich man had all that he needed in life. And our point isn't to expound all the significance of uh, this account that the Lord is, is holding forth, but simply to make the point that you exist after you die, after life on this earth, you continue to exist. Look at verse 22, Luke 16, verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, the end of his physical life. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And then it records the interaction that took place. And I just want us to note the end of the passage Because in the end of the passage, the rich man is very concerned for his relatives who are still alive. And he and he wants he wants Lazarus to go and and come back from come from the dead to go and warn his brothers about what is to happen. But look at what look at what Abraham says. Verse 29. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And I simply point that out as we're in this passage to emphasize the fact that the one place that you find hope, the one place that you find truth about life after death, the one place that offers eternal salvation is the Word of God. And Christ in that account makes it very clear that even miracles are inferior to the Word of God that brings Life, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. 
But back to the original point that brought us to that passage. Your physical body will return to dust. You will die and you will be buried. But you will continue to exist. In the transfiguration accounts, as Jesus was on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, Moses and Elijah also came and appeared. They died centuries, millennia before, and yet they continue to exist. So in 1 Corinthians 15.50, Paul says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And it makes clear that although we continue to exist, we can't attain eternal life. We can't attain the kingdom of God through flesh and blood. In our flesh and blood, our, our present physical body is perishable. To put it in a colloquial term, you have an expiration date. Next time you go to the grocery store and you're picking out milk and you're looking at the expiration date, remember that there is an expiration date stamped on your life. The Lord knows the number of your days. They're settled. You'll expire. And you'll be buried. So here is the conundrum, the problem. We are flesh and blood. We're utterly corrupt, body and soul. How does God deliver from death? Since therefore the children, those even whom God had, had selected from eternity past to be redeemed by Christ, the children share in flesh and blood, and therefore the children are susceptible to death. And notice that we all have fellowship. That's the word behind uh, share. We all have fellowship in this condition. You, you and I are made of dust that will return to dust. I mean, isn't this wonderful that, you know, a hundred years from now, we're all sharers in future dust? Kind of puts a lot of things in perspective, doesn't it? We tend to get bent out of shape over such minor things, but when we remember the big picture, so many things start to fall into place. The children share in flesh and blood. We're all made of corruptible stuff. We're all going to go back to dust. This is the great liability. Flesh and blood cannot continue forever. Flesh and blood will die. It wears out, and in and of oneself, once the body dies, in and of yourself, once the body dies, the soul is eternally condemned. Outside of Christ, in and of yourself, once the body dies, the soul is eternally condemned. There's no second chances. It is appointed to men to die once, and after this, the judgment the writer of Hebrews will make that statement in chapter 9 and verse 27. It is fearful. It is fearful to think of that reality. So what did God do to redeem His children? Well, we've seen our vulnerable condition. Let's notice, secondly, Christ's humble condescension. Christ's humble condescension 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. The statement, he himself partook of the same things, is the main clause of this section. This is, this is the statement around which everything is centered. And there's a different word that the writer uses to talk of Christ taking on flesh. He says that we all have fellowship in flesh and blood, but Christ took on the same things. He was not always a being with flesh and blood. He took on something that he did not previously have. Christ existed in eternity past, but at a specific point in time, he took on flesh and blood. Galatians chapter 4 and verses 4 and 5 put it this way. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So in this marvelous statement that Christ likewise partook of the same things, in the single statement, the, the writer describes the incarnation without, without surrendering any element of his deity, of the fact that Jesus is God, Christ took on flesh and blood for the sake of his children. And how did this happen? How could God become man? How could God become man? How could God become sinless man? Well, there's an answer to that, and it's found in Gabriel's statement to Mary in Luke 1, verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. The virgin birth is a critical doctrine to understanding what Christ did to secure our salvation. In Adam, all die. The guilt of Adam was imputed to all mankind. The moment we come into existence, we are guilty sinners before God in Adam. But according to the promise, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, after the fall, God promised to Eve that her seed, her seed would bruise the head of that serpent. Christ would be born a sinless man, born of woman. It's the fulfillment of the promise of God's mercy and of His grace extended at the very point when man was thrust into the darkness of sin and death. Christ partook of the same that He might bruise the head of the serpent and redeem His children. And yet He was sinless, perfect, holy, the Son of God. Two additional passages 
clarify both the deity and the humanity of Christ. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in chapter or verse 14, John, as John continues that introduction, you know what? Let me just have you turn there instead of telling you about it. Go ahead and turn to chapter 1 of the Gospel of John. John chapter 1. It's, a, it's an important passage when we consider the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. As I said, there are so many passages to, to talk about when we think about God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ. It's wonderful. It's overwhelming what God did to provide our salvation. Look at John 1, and let's just look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And those statements, John is giving us a zip file uh, statement that, that Jesus is God. He was, he was there at creation. He was the creator. All things exist through him. But then run your eyes down to verse 14. That word, that word that was with God, that word that is God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The eternally existent Word, the eternally existent second person of the Trinity, God the Son, took on flesh, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of, as of the only Son from the Father, the preeminent one, full of grace and truth. He is the exposition of God. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Now you say, well, how, does the, how did this happen? I mean, it... it it, it surpasses my ability to comprehend. Join the club. It surpasses my ability to comprehend as well. But in the inspired Word of God, Jesus, the eternally existent Son of God, the eternally existent second person of the Trinity, took on flesh to redeem sinful man. And I believe it. That doesn't make it true. Whether I believe it or not doesn't matter. Whether you believe it or not doesn't matter. It is true because God has stated it in His infallible Word, and you must believe it. You must believe it to have life. Well, as we go back, let's stop in John 17. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, as he prepares to go to the cross to make propitiation for our sins, to sacrifice 
Himself for our redemption. Look at what Jesus says as He prays to the Father. Oh, John 17 is such a rich portion of Scripture. But look at verse 5. Jesus speaking to the Father. And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. It's a statement of Christ understanding who He is. I existed with you, Father, before the world existed. And so before I go to the cross, before I lay down my life for my children, Lord God, I'm praying, I'm praying that you will see this all the way through. I'm praying that as I die, that your work will be continued to be accomplished. And that as I rise again, that I will then ascend and be with you and, and, and re establish the glory that I had with you before anything else ever existed. And folks, you, you, have to, you have to believe that Jesus Christ is God. You have to believe that He is the eternal Son of God to have salvation in His name. You cannot deny the deity of Christ and have salvation. There are those who want to say, well, Christ is a good man, but He's not God. Well, if He's a good man and not God, but proclaiming that He is God here, then He is no longer a good man. You have to believe Christ for all that He said. Take Him for all that He is. And it's marvelous that the one who had glory. Oh, glory that we can never even fully comprehend. Every, every time we see an expression of the glory of Christ in the Scriptures, the word like is used. Because the, the writers are trying to grasp something that our minds will comprehend and, and, and give us just a, a, a simple uh, a glimpse of how glorious Christ is. His face was like the sun. It wasn't the sun, but it was like the sun. And this glorious second person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, set aside that glory to partake, to take upon Himself flesh for His children. This is the grand and simple explanation of how the Son of God, the one superior to the angels, could become lower than the angels for a little while and taste death. He voluntarily took on flesh. Christ's condescension as the Son of God enabled Him to accomplish what neither angels, Moses, or the law could do. The angels, yes, they are sinless. The, the holy angels of heaven, God's ministering spirits, yes, they are sinless, but they are created beings and not God. Moses, though he was a man, and though he was the meekest of men, yet he was still sinful. And the law, though perfect, 
or the perfect revelation of God and his character and his expectations possess no redeeming value. The law, it's through the law that we know the conviction of sin. The satisfaction of God's perfect justice required a sinless sacrifice of blood with infinite value. The slightest, the slightest lack of love that you or I have for God, the slightest lack of trust that we have in God is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. That, that no one can pay, no man can pay an infinite, an infinite offense because we're finite, we're flesh and blood. But Christ, as God and as sinless man, God in flesh, could fully satisfy the righteousness of God in his sacrifice on the cross. Well, if you're not there, go ahead and turn back to Hebrews chapter 2. We've seen your vulnerable condition. We're flesh and blood. You are flesh and blood. You will expire. We've seen Christ's humble condescension. Christ took of the same things. But now, third, we look at Christ's mighty conquest. Christ's mighty conquest. The end of verse 14 Christ partook of these same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And this statement that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, we have the first purpose statement for why Christ took on flesh and blood. He fulfilled the promise to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Satan effectively struck the heel. Death reigned. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Satan is the responsible party for death. Death came into the world through sin, and Satan was the one who tempted Adam and Eve to sin. John chapter 8 and verse 44, Jesus says of Satan that he was a murderer from the beginning. Satan's end goal was to kill what God had created to destroy God's creation and his pride and his desire to be like God. Satan is destructive. Satan is a liar. He's a deceiver. He is a murderer. And through his work, death entered the world. He wielded a fear of death over God's creatures. And death could only be defeated through death, but through the death of the sinless Son of God. Before we go on, let me clarify one thing that is very, very important to understand. Although Satan carries the fear of death, and although it was through his diabolical work that death came into the world, 
Christ's sacrifice, Christ's blood sacrifice was not made to Satan. Christ's sacrifice destroyed the power of Satan, but Christ's blood sacrifice was not made to Satan. Christ's sacrifice was made to propitiate the wrath of God against sin. Christ's sacrifice was offered to God. It was God offering to God the purchase price of redemption on the cross. And through that sacrifice, Satan's power was completely and utterly broken. But he was not the recipient of the sacrifice. God was. His power was broken because the wrath of God was satisfied and the, the people, the children of God that God had, had selected for his son from eternity past were freed from the condemnation of sin, were freed from eternity apart from the gracious presence of God, were freed from hell, the place that God has prepared for the devil and his angels, and they were given eternal life in Christ Jesus. The sacrifice was made to God, but the power of Satan was broken. Again, just to underscore the nature of Satan, verse, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. <laughs> We could stop there and think about that for a long time. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, in describing the consequences for sin, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and that's referring back to the garden where, where Satan tempted Adam and Eve, sin came into the world through one man, through the fall of Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. James chapter 1, verse 15 tells us what the end of sin is. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin inevitably always brings death. And because all are sinners, all are subject to the fear of death. Through sin, Satan brought separation from God, and death is the result of rebellion against God. Death is the ultimate separation. God told Adam, you will surely die. But through death, Christ destroyed the devil's power of death. Through death, Christ destroyed the devil's power of death for the children of God by rendering sin powerless. It was all paid for because Christ paid the penalty for sin. His children faced death with no penalty. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
You don't need to turn there. You can if you'd like. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The sting of death was removed in Christ. Stated another way, nothing you can do in your physical body will atone for your sin. This is, this is the importance of understanding the, the absolute worthlessness of works for salvation. Nothing you can do in your physical body will atone for your sin, but because Jesus died for sin, when this life is over, you have no penalty to pay. Jesus paid it all. <laughs> We know that hymn, right? Jesus paid it all. And what's the response? All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And that's all sin, all your sins, the sins that you had committed before you knew Christ, the sins that you commit today, the sins that you'll commit until you die. No, they're all cleansed in Christ. They're all washed white as snow. So all to him I owe. He paid it all. You, in Christ, when you die, you enter eternal life. You enter the presence of the Lord. You're ushered into His presence based on the redemption provided in Christ and His righteousness. He he destroyed the one who had the power of death. Listen to this testimony from Revelation chapter 12. Verses 10 and 11. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him. They have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. What is it that conquers the accusation of the devil? The blood of the Lamb that leads to a testimony. It's not inspired, but I go back to the hymn, Jesus paid it all. And so, that passage concludes, for they loved not their lives even unto death. How, how can you not love your life even to death? Because in Christ, the fear of death is removed. This was the mighty conquest of Christ. Christ, in his humble condescension and taking on the flesh of, of man, he humbled himself to death, even death on the cross. And through that death, he, he conquered the fear of death. He conquered him who had the fear of of death, the devil. And so we come finally and fourthly this morning to your victorious confidence. We started with your vulnerable condition, but what intervened? Well, what intervened was Christ's humble condescension and Christ's mighty conquest at the cross, leading now to the statement of your victorious confidence in verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is the second purpose statement related to why Christ partook of the same things. 
He partook of those things to defeat the devil and to deliver his children. Specifically, you as one in Christ, you are a child of God and no longer an enemy. Romans 8, chapter, or verses 14 and 15 puts it this way, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For, and we could add, in Christ, for in Christ you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of, of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We've been transformed from enemies of God to sons of God in Christ. To those who because of the the sacrifice of Christ and the Spirit of God within us, we go directly to God. We go to God to find mercy and grace in our time of need. We need no other high priest. We need no other mediator. It's done in Christ and we have full access to God. Christ's perfect satisfaction of the law's demands liberates those who trust in Christ alone from the wrath of God. We do not approach Him in that fear and trembling of terror because of sin, but in reverence and worship because He redeemed us in His Son. And so, when you serve Christ, when you serve Christ, you have no reason to fear. Might your service lead you to die for the sake of Christ? It might, but you have no fear of death. Because to die is to be ushered into the presence of the Lord. To die is to be freed from this body of sin. And folks, even when you sin, I say this carefully, but this is, this is the joy of the gospel. Even when you sin, you have no reason to fear. You have no reason to fear going to your Father and confessing your sin, knowing that His forgiveness will be rich and free. Now certainly, it's not licensed to sin. But we do sin, and we have an advocate with our Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Oh, He has removed the fear of death. He has delivered us He delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There's a lot of records in Scripture of encounters with angels. But not one encounter with one angel brought this result of being delivered from the fear of death. Moses did not deliver Israel from the fear of death. The law only intensifies the fear of death by increasing sin. Jesus came in the flesh to deliver his children from the fear of death. He accomplished it. We've seen the vulnerable condition that we have as flesh and blood. blood. We've seen Christ's humble condescension as he took on flesh We've seen his mighty conquest at the cross. We can't look at the nativity 
without seeing the shadow of the cross. And all of that leads to your victorious confidence in Christ. Peter says that those in Christ partake of the divine nature. For you to partake of the divine nature, for you to be seated with Christ in heavenly places, Christ had to partake of human nature and descend from the heavenly places. For a short time, the creator of the angels became lower than the angels to sanctify his children and to deliver them from the fear of death. But as the writer says, one day all will be subject to Christ under his feet and God will be all in all. We praise him as those in Christ for the deliverance he's given. And if you're here today or under the sound of my voice through the live stream or later, may I offer, based on the authority of Scripture, Christ, the Redeemer, if you are one who is still dead in your trespasses and sins, will you turn to Christ in repentance and faith Will you turn to Christ and find the joy and the peace and the comfort that Christ alone gives as He redeems you and as He delivers you from the fear of what is inevitable, from the fear of what is going to come, from the fear of your expiration date, from the fear of death? Turn to Christ. Find Him sufficient for all. Well, may the Lord give us grace to worship our King today, to live for Him as we await His return. Lord God, we thank You for sending Christ. Oh, how desperately we needed a Savior. We praise You. We praise You for all that Christ is. We thank You, Lord Jesus, that You humbled Yourself for us, that You died as the sacrifice, the payment for sin. Thank You, Spirit of God, for Your work in drawing men to Yourself and regenerating and in lifting up and glorifying our great Savior. We love You. We thank You for the Word of God today. And we pray that Your great work would be accomplished in each life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.